So folks, we're almost there. Our Advent journey of waiting and expectation is almost over. Jesus is coming. So the joys and the celebration of Christmastide are right around the corner. We're not there yet. Today is our final Sunday of Advent. It's the fourth Sunday of Advent. It's a time when we often focus on peace. It's often the theme. Some years we read the gospel story, and it's that story of the angel announce, making that announcement of Jesus' birth to the shepherds. Glory to God uh, and on earth peace and so on and so on. This year we focus on a more specific and a more personal announcement, the Annunciation. Okay? It's a story you just heard. The angel Gabriel coming to Mary to herald the birth of Jesus, this child who will bring peace on earth. That famous phrase that even non-Christians associate with Christmas and the birth of Jesus and so on. Now, in speaking of Mary and Jesus, uh, we can't help but speak a little bit about the Immaculate Conception, right? The virgin birth. Something that's kind of overlooked sometimes in Christian doctrine, but it's in the earliest of our creeds. It's in the Apostles' Creed. It's in the Nicene Creed. Jesus was born of a Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. So it's a cornerstone in the Christian story. We shouldn't rush past it too quickly. So a brief foray. It is utterly unique, and we don't find a parallel for this in the Old Testament. So, fascinating. The virgin birth, the Immaculate Conception, is such a key doctrine because it's part of the Incarnation. God taking on flesh, which is a wonder in and of itself. It's a wonder that God should come at all. It's a wonder that he should come as one of us. It's a wonder that he should endure the worst that the world had to offer and to save us. It's a wonder that he should return to his father's house and secure a place there for us. It's a wonder. All that is true. And the simple fact that Jesus came and lived in the womb of a young girl means so much. Without the virgin birth, there is no incarnation. So we can't skip over that. The incarnation is God literally making his home in vulnerable, flawed humanity. A risk? (laughs) Yeah. One that the Lord is willing to take. And so our Savior takes on our humanity and comes to us through a young Jewish girl named Mary. So the gospel reading you just heard, the Annunciation, it's called, follows directly on the heels of another miraculous pregnancy, John the Baptist. We heard about early on in Advent. So John's mother-to-be, Elizabeth, she is too old to conceive. But the angel Gabriel brings news to the contrary. So Elizabeth and her husband, the priest Zechariah, meet the news with doubt. So the Annunciation stands in contrast to that. How does Mary receive this impossible message from Gabriel that she will conceive a son, but in an even more miraculous way than Elizabeth? So God sends the angel Gabriel, his name, which means God is my strength. Love that. On yet another divine mission. So in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Gabriel shows up in a small backwater town called Nazareth. This is an obscure town in Galilee. It's small potatoes. Forgettable, nothing special, tiny and insignificant. Probably less than a thousand souls based off ancient census docs. It's small, forgettable. Now, we've seen Gabriel before in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, in Daniel 8 and 9, Gabriel comes to Daniel, helps him understand his visions, and helps him understand Israel's place in the great salvation story. In the New Testament, 
I just told you he appeared earlier in Luke 1 to Zechariah in the temple to announce the birth of John the Baptist. And Gabriel tells him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Don't be afraid. We're going to hear that same echo again in our passage. So Gabriel is looking for a young Jewish girl named Mary, most likely 12 to 14 years old. Let that sink in. I know it was a different time, different culture, but let that sink in. 12 to 14 years old. She was poor and she was common. And she's betrothed to a man named Joseph, who happens to be of David's lineage, King David. So this soon-to-be couple were people of very humble means, ordinary in every sense, common and poor. The kind of people that the world will take no notice of and will overlook again and again. So this tells us something about the Messiah who will come from her womb. He will be lowly and humble of heart. God with us in ways the world overlooks or just doesn't value. Okay? So her betrothal to Joseph was right in line with the cultural norms of the day. It's far more serious than an engagement. It just it was a different deal. You break off an engagement in our day and age, it's a big deal to some, but it doesn't have the same gravity of breaking off a betrothal. You often had to get a certificate of divorce to do this. So in other words, Mary and Joseph, they're all in. <laughs> and in their betrothal, they had remained pure. It says that Mary was a virgin. Gabriel comes to Mary alone. I find this a little fascinating. Why not bring Joseph into the mix too, right? Get the couple on board, uh, seal the deal. That would be far more effective, wouldn't it? I don't know why it's just to Mary, but it is. Gabriel seeks out only Mary and he greets her in this way. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. That's quite a greeting. To be favored by the Lord means he's chosen you as his precious child, a daughter in this case. It means you're beloved. It means you're a recipient of his grace, his favor. To be favored is something amazing and special. We can't skip over his greeting. And don't you love this? The Lord is with you. I love this. This is Emmanuel, God with us, uh, literally. And it be begins with Mary, God with her, God literally within her. It's pretty staggering. So she receives this greeting and says she is greatly troubled. And she tries to ascertain what sort of greeting this might be. This is verse 29. Now, the Greek word there for greatly troubled, it's so strong and intense, it's hard to capture. It's unique, too. It doesn't happen anywhere else in the, Old, in the New Testament. Why is she so bewildered and troubled? Right? The text doesn't say. We don't know. We're just left with guesses. Now, most certainly, the presence of an angel would cause someone pause. Fear is the usual response when someone encounters an angel in Scripture. Gabriel's presence here is no doubt overwhelming, glorious, but foreign, holy, other, and unbelievable. Who is this divine being and why is he here? What sort of greeting is this? What does he want of me? Mary might have wondered. And in the midst of those troubled ruminations, Gabriel speaks the message he was sent by God to deliver. Don't be afraid, Mary, he says. You found favor with God, reiterating that again. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. <clears throat> and of his kingdom there will be no end. Do not be afraid. After he greets her, those are the first words out of Gabriel's mouth. 
said the same words to Zechariah about John the Baptist's birth. The angel in Luke 2, what's he say to the shepherds? The same thing. Don't be afraid. And I'm sure this assurance was quite necessary. Angels were awe-inspiring. They provoked wonder and fear, probably in equal measure. I sort of imagine in Angel Training 101, they're probably taught to offer, you know, give, give those human folk a word of encouragement and assurance first. That, that's a good thing to do. Don't be afraid. I mean you no harm. So when God sends his messengers with tidings of joy, with good news, they bring this necessary word of assurance and comfort. We need this in order to hear the good news, this message of joy and celebration. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I bring good news. And what is this good news exactly? Well, you know the answer. Mary will be the Theotokos. She will be the God bearer, (laughs) the long awaited Messiah coming from the line of David. Mary, it's going to come from you and you'll call him Jesus, whose name means God is my salvation and his kingdom, by the way, will have no end. Now, what is Mary to make of all that? That's an awful lot to digest. Based off what Gabriel told her, we have no indication that she fully understands that her son will be the savior of the universe. Right? Israel's Messiah, maybe. That comes out in the Magnificat. All she really knows is that her son will be some sort of king from David's line, presumably because Joseph's the husband, that he'll be a mighty king of some sort, and that his kingdom will endure forever. Folks, I got to tell you, that provokes more questions than answers for me. What does Gabriel, if I'm in Mary's shoes, what does Gabriel mean? What is God up to exactly, and how does this play out? I mean, how in the world does a 12 to 14 year old peasant girl process that kind of divine data? That's a lot. And she responds, how can this be since I'm a virgin? I love the innocence here, coupled with sort of a, (laughs) wait, hold on a second, sort of realism. How can this be? How can this be? For I'm a virgin. Can't you hear Mary's incredulity and, and just a naked sense of astonishment here? Gabriel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now, theologically, that part of our passage, 35 to 37, that's stunning. If you pick it apart, it's a full-on Trinitarian invocation. Uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work together. But let's get back to Mary. If you're in her sandals, what? I mean, we have no indication that Mary knows what the Holy Spirit is. She's 12 to 14 years old. I'm pretty sure she doesn't have this well-developed theological sense of pneumatology. I don't think she has that worked out. What does this mean that the Most High, God himself, will overshadow her? It's a very powerful word. That's a really strong statement. And while I want to be careful with what the biblical text says and doesn't say, if I'm a 12 to 14-year-old girl, that sounds utterly overwhelming and maybe downright scary. And this child shall be called Holy, the Son of God. Again, what? How is any child born of human flesh considered holy? 
No human being is holy. God alone is the Holy One. The Old Testament is abundantly clear on that. How will this be? How will he be holy? And what about this Son of God business? Does Gabriel mean this in a a kingly, comes from David's line sort of sense because Israel's human kings were spoken of in that way? How could Mary possibly know what this meant? That her son would be the son of God Almighty. And not only that, but God himself, the holy anointed one, the Messiah. God taking on human flesh and tabernacling with us, making his home with us. We have no indication that she fully understands the implications of this at all, which is part of the point. Her faith and trust, I find incredible and indeed immaculate. This is all impossible, of course. Gabriel knows it. It's quite impossible for Elizabeth to conceive in her old age, right? But the virgin birth, the immaculate conception, I mean, guys, that's, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. That's just not possible. Thus, Gabriel's final words, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. So Gabriel's announcement to Mary is anchored in the impossible, and that's part of the point, isn't it? For nothing will be impossible with God. That truth will bear itself out in the life, the ministry, the crucifixion, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. Nothing is impossible for God. If God is for us, who shall be against us? So Mary's reception is immaculate. Listen to her faithful resolve in our final verse, 38. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord, so let it be to me according to your word. She receives this call with faith. There's so much she doesn't know. And yet she gives God her yes. This isn't some robotic, dutiful, and obedient response. Can't hear it that way. This is not some thoughtless, obligatory answer at all. Mary's response is one of surrender. Quiet surrender. She calls herself the Lord's servant. Doulos, okay, or the handmaiden in some of the older translations. I find this to be more than a little heroic on her part. Even if this response had come from a mature and adult Christian. Mary's a young high schooler. Okay, imagine that for a moment. She is very, very brave and has not a whole lot to go on. There's so much she does not know yet. And yet she steps forward in faith, says a rather unimaginable yes to God's impossible promise. God's going to make a home in her for his son. She will bear the savior to be called Jesus. She will become the God bearer, the Theotokos. So Mary yields and she surrenders to this. May it be to me, as you've said, I'm the Lord's servant and the promise is born soon after. So despite all I've just said and all we've just encountered in Luke, the Annunciation, the church has a kind of a sordid history of knowing what to do with Mary, how to handle her. I mean, the theology behind the virgin birth, the immaculate conception, that's a whole other thing. It gets very messy and really complicated. But I don't want to focus so much on that. I want to focus on how we've handled Mary. The result has been that Mary has been dumbed down into sort of some caricature of blind obedience. 
while missing out on the reality that she was a real living and breathing flesh and bone young girl, very young girl. She's been either exalted as a deity. I mean, medieval theologians made her almost equal to the Trinity, for real. (laughs) Or she's been ignored and sidelined since the shakeout of the Reformation. What are we to make of Mary? Now, some see Mary as a the prime example of like a like girl power, like holy girl power, if you want to think of it that way. Now, there's much to commend us to that view, so I don't want to miss that. I think there's some truth in that. It does underwrite the dignity and the importance of the strong, faithful women in the biblical story, and her place in that is special, no doubt. But I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. Luke doesn't focus on Mary as some divine member of the Trinity, fourth member. Doesn't focus on her as some exemplary mother of the Messiah. Neither does he focus on her gender, her role as a strong woman of faith. What's most important about Mary is her role as a faithful Christian. Someone both men and women who follow Jesus can emulate. She's a true believer, in other words. Her words to Gabriel, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Just heard a second ago. Let it be to me according to your word. That's a very direct parallel to what Jesus will later pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Mary shows us how it's done. This is faith. This is humility. And this is a servant devoted to God. These are the marks of a true disciple. That's the point I think Luke is making here. She shows us how to wait upon the Lord, doesn't she? How to meet the promises God makes and to embrace the radical attendant demands that come with saying yes to God. Mary shows us how to surrender and how to walk in faith with a holy resolve. So during this season of waiting, Advent, Mary shows us how it's done. And by the way, if you read further on in Luke 1, I encourage you to do that later, It shows that she does it with joy. It is not duty. It's joy. Read the Magnificat if you doubt what I'm saying. So the story of the Annunciation, we'll close here, teaches us a most basic truth that's easy to miss. It is for me at least. Where does God want to make his home? In you and I. Emmanuel, God with us. Where does the Holy Spirit reside? In you and I. Emmanuel, God with us. Where is God's temple? In you and I. Emmanuel, God with us in this house, not fashioned by human hands. Where does God reside in the church, the body of Christ? In you and I. Emmanuel, God with us. That's why Advent is a season of examining our hearts closely. Is our heart a good place for God to dwell? That's a key question for Advent. Because he's coming to live there. Are we ready to receive him? Are our hearts in good order? What a timely reminder as we prepare to leave Advent and we prepare for the coming of the Christ child in Christmas time. It's next week. Are we ready? That is the question.